0: I'm so glad that we were here a few nights ago starting the Bible study on the book of Titus, and and because that's where we are, I also wanted to preach a topical sermon from the book of Titus, and as Paul says that he is serving for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time— because of that hope, I also wanted to preach for your faith and for your knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That is why, that is why we're in Titus, the book of Titus, this afternoon. It's a beautiful Saturday morning. You're enjoying a good cup of coffee. You're talking about the plans for the day and the doorbell rings. And you walk over to the door, wondering who it is that has come over to your house this early on the weekend. And um, we've all been there. You know, they maybe want to sign you up for a magazine subscription for their school. They're selling cookies for their club. They're trying to advertise their business. But what what do you do? As soon as you find out who it is that is at the front door, do you say no, thank you, and you close the door, or do you wait? And do you listen, and maybe you give in, and maybe you take out your wallet and you buy whatever they are selling. More frequently and more seriously, we get a knock on the door of our hearts. Sinful desire is standing at the front door offering us something. Take this. Just enjoy this. Do this. This will make your life easier and happier. You need this. Just one more and you will be happy. And so at that moment, what do you do? Either you give in, you accept the lie, you open the door to sinful desire, leaving you more enslaved and more frustrated, or you will say no. Self control is a so very essential yet often overlooked virtue. The lack of self control is dangerously tolerated, considered to be a respectable sin in the church. And so, how will you handle those few seconds? What you do in those few seconds can be as small as saying no to another Oreo or another hour of Netflix, or it could be as something as significant as saying yes to forgiveness and integrity. This is hard, very hard. It's hard because we have fallen in the past and we have been left unsatisfied. We consider the past with frustration against ourselves and assume we are totally hopeless in this regard. We know this is important, but honestly saying no to sinful desire and saying yes to holiness is simply too hard. You tried again, but you, you fell. And are we, are we missing something? Self-control is about saying no, But it is far more than that i want to raise and deal with three very honest questions about self-control this afternoon this this afternoon we'll start with the book of proverbs but we'll settle in the book of titus three honest questions about self-control first question is it good and helpful should we consider this to begin with is it good and helpful Self-control regarding our time or purity or our words, is this optional or essential? Is it really worth it? Outside of the Bible, we hear the opposite. We are told that self-control is limiting or boring. It's suffocating the fun of our lives. Pop psychology can tell us that, it's, that repressing and restraining our heart's desires can be unhealthy and will do more damage to our souls in the long run. Actually, doing whatever feels good will bring seconds and seconds of happiness, but, but wisdom brings life. We gather this afternoon admitting that we've messed up again. Too often sinful desires have come to the door of our hearts, repeating the lie from Eden that this brings happiness. And too often we have said yes to sin and no to self-control. And so to face those Initial few seconds, very differently next time. Believe this here and now, that self-control is not only good and helpful, but it is essential. Proverbs 25, 28. Hear the word of the Lord. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. During that time, the city had a thick, strong wall surrounding it. The city wall made it difficult for enemies to come through. The city wall protected the people, the children, the houses, the possessions, everything of value. The city wall was good, healthful and essential. Imagine if the city wall was broken. What would happen? The enemy can easily walk in. The people would be vulnerable and defenseless. And after all the damage that follows, it would take a long time to really recover. And if the city walls are this important, and if the broken walls are this harmful, what do you think that says about your life? What would happen if you had no restraint or boundary or discipline over your desires? What would you think about? And what would you say? And what would you watch? And what would you listen to? What would your diet be like? How would you relate? What would you do? Where would you go? Self-control is that important. Proverbs sixteen thirty two. whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, or has self-control, he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Conquering a city is great, but do you know what's better? Conquering your desires in spirit. If the spirit is already convicting you about a specific area of self-control in your life, Listen carefully, because this is in fact very good for you. Which brings us to the second question. If it's good, then what does it look like? Admitting that this is helpful and essential is too broad and too theoretical. Here at ACFOC, what does it look like? Those who gathered here today have different stories, are in the middle of various seasons of life, facing very different experiences and struggles. To be specific and personal, let's turn the Word of God to the book of Titus and open up with me to four, and follow along. Titus 1.4, in Paul's greeting we read, To Titus, my true child in our common faith. Paul led this Greek man to Christ, then discipled him and trained him for ministry. Titus was a trusted, spirit-filled fellow worker in the ministry who had accompanied Paul in a few of his missionary journeys. And in verse 5, we read that Paul left Titus in in Crete for a few things, to put things in order, to appoint elders, to deal with the false teachers who were adding and and so distorting the gospel, and to instruct people on proper Christian conduct. Surrounded by the paganism of the Roman Empire, the church in Crete seriously struggled with worldliness. The people of Crete were not known for their self-control. Worldliness and self-indulgence was the motto of the island. The church was in danger. Maybe they they too were giving in and opening the door of their hearts to sinful desires. Maybe they too had wrong understandings of the gospel and were belittling the grace of God, seeing it as permission for further sin. And so throughout the letter, Paul emphasizes biblical teaching. This ought to be one of the first and repeated items in any church's to-do list. Paul starts the letter in verse 1 by saying that his writing is for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. He then instructs Titus to appoint elders who, in verse 9, must hold firm to the trustworthy message as taught, so that they may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Then in chapter 2, again, teaching. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And scattered in, in the chapter, we see teaching and training and setting an example and encouraging and rebuking. And towards the end in chapter 3, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. If you want to be a godly community that avoids privatized faith, if we want to see the next generation to hope in God, if we want to excel in self-control and personal discernment in daily life and total abstinence of anything that offends God, the ongoing teaching of God's Word must be there. And here in chapter 2, there are five groups of people that Titus speaks to directly or indirectly that Titus ought to directly or indirectly teach and train in self-control. Five groups all need self-control. What might it look like? First, the elders. Chapter 1, 7 and 8. For an overseer or elder, same person, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or, or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, Self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, which is very similar to self-control. This particular word for self-control here refers to the mind, to be sober-minded, to have right thoughts about what you should do, to possess thoughtful care about your conduct. Self-control here is a compound word consisting of the word to save and the word for mind— to be sober-minded, to control yourself. So the elder is to have control over what he thinks about and what he does, not to be ruled by feelings or circumstances or sin, neither to let his mind be filled with what is trivial and unproductive, but a mind renewed by the Word of God. Several years ago, I attended a ministry seminar that was led by Ajith Fernando who at the time was the Youth for Christ director of Sri Lanka, he mentioned many things on that day. He made one comment about self-control. To leaders, quote, Spiritual leaders long to be free from everything that hinders their fullest delight in God and service of others. Spiritual leaders long to be free from everything that hinders their fullest delight in God. And their service to others. So, for the sake of the delight in God and service of others, elders ought to be men of self control. The health of the elder's personal life affects that of the marriage and the family, which in turn affects the rest of the ministry. And so, the spiritual health of an elder is that important. The daily life of elders highlights the reality and the power of the gospel. And so, can you imagine what damage spreads when self-control is completely lacking in the life of the church leaders and shepherds? Be in prayer for your pastor. Be in prayer for your elders. Pray, Acts twenty twenty-eight for them, that they would pay careful attention to themselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, to care for the church of God which Jesus obtained with his blood. Pray for them. Pray for 1 Timothy 4.16, for the elders to persistently keep close watch on themselves and their teaching. What does it look like? For the sake of time, I'll mention just one area of self-control for the shepherds, pastors, elders, and that is the area of busyness. Ask yourself, Do you think that busyness in church work is the same as fruitfulness? Do Do you think that as long as you're busy, that it's actually just automatically fruitful? How many times a month are you leaving your family in the evenings for yet another meeting? Do family and friends complain about not getting enough time with you? Has anyone ever said to you, I don't want to trouble you because I know how busy you are? Do you have back pain? Is your neck sore? Do you have trouble sleeping at night? Do your wife and children know and daily see that after Jesus, they are the most important and precious in your life? Your life as an elder must not look like a perpetual summer camp and a three-ring circus. Be careful that you don't assume that more and busy is necessarily right. Don't feel guilty to rest, please. Don't assume it will fall apart if you don't do it and if you don't go. If church leaders or, in fact, anyone battles with this issue of busyness, I encourage you to read a short book by Pastor Kevin DeYoung called Crazy Busy. It's very good, very convicting. First elders, second older men. Titus 2, 1 and 2. Follow with me. But as for you, as for you, Titus, teach. Again, we see this. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in faithfulness. Two out of the four qualities stress for older men to have self-control. They are to be sober-minded as well. Yes, older men might have more wisdom and experience, but they also must be taught, Titus, The 4th century church father John Chrysostom once said the following, There are some failings which age has that youth has not. Some indeed it has in common with youth, but in addition, it has a slowness, a timidity, a forgetfulness, an insensibility, and an irritability. Do you see that in older men? This tendency to be irritable or to be insensible, And, and so... Older men need to be taught, especially in regards to self-control. They might have more aches and pains. They are maybe are more set in their ways, maybe more difficult to change, more frustrated towards other situations. But where are you in the area of self-control regarding your anger, brothers? Maybe lately you are frustrated that everything is changing in your family. You are more concerned about your children, what they are watching. You're more concerned about the worldly influence. You are concerned about their attitude and their decline of respect for you. What do you do? You get angry and you want to be more controlling. Maybe all your coworkers are younger than you and, in your opinion, less experienced and less wise. And so as you spend time with them all day and all week, you start becoming more critical of them and less loving. What do you do? Will you allow anger to brew in your heart while at work? Maybe there's something you were planning and waiting for, but it all fell apart and it didn't work out as you had hoped. Will you lose control and get angry once more? Like a city without walls is an older man who is always negative, always critical, always angry, always controlling where he is. Brothers, I need to encourage you to be sound in faith and in love and in endurance. Elders, older men, and third, older women. Chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what, is, teach what is good, and so train the young woman. Let's stop right there. Reverent, they are to live in a way that honors God. The word here includes the picture of a priestess carrying out her duties in the temple. They are not to abuse their use of alcohol, nor abuse others with words. Sisters, avoid slander at all costs. Guard your words. Have you recently met with another girlfriend to share your concerns about someone else? You talk about someone, you highlight their sins. Even if they were of the past, you overly criticize and you put them down. Where is the self-control that God's Word is calling you to have? Maybe your conversation is not necessarily slander, but it's wasteful and it's unedifying. You are making a big deal about something or dragging an issue that shouldn't have bothered you this much. Know that such negativity is easily spread and leaves everyone listening discouraged the quality of self-control is not listed here as it did for elders and older men but i want to point your attention to verse four what are the older women to do train the younger women while the elders are the ones who teach in the case of young women the teachers are the older women this is their calling their responsibility older sisters what wise and helpful members you are of the body of Christ. The younger women need you. When a young mother or a young woman has a question, what might they do? They Google it. They check social media posts. They research, which might be helpful, but also can leave them more confused or more feeling judged. But there is a better resource than Google the older women in the church, they have been there. With experience comes wisdom. What a gift to have older sisters to love and pray for and help the young women. When verse 4 says, train the young women, the word for train is not the common word for teaching. It is a very rare word found only here in the New Testament. It's a form of the word for self-control that we already saw in eight in 22 it means to cause someone to be of su- sound mind and to have self and to have self control so their discipleship specialty ought to be self control and so older women ought to have self self control in their lives so that they set an example and teach the young women to help them grow in self control themselves older women ought to be teachers in the school of self-control. So instead of slander and gossip, can you imagine what good you can bring to the community with your wisdom and care, with all the suffering and trials you have walked through already? What ministry moments is God leading you today? So speak to the younger women of the glorious works of the Lord so that they would also hope in God. Now a word to the younger women. Verses 4 and 5. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Self controlled, other translations say to be sensible, to live wisely. Once more, this virtue demanded from elders, older men, older women, is also something to be seen in the lives of the young women, from college girls, from engaged women, from newlywed wives, from mothers of toddlers, from mothers of teenagers. Where would we be without our Christian moms? Let us give thanks to God for the godly, women and the godly mothers in this church, those who hunger more for Jesus and are discipling their children to do the same, surely you are a gift from God to this community. You are a gift. And we know that you carry a huge load. You have many responsibilities. Moms are overtired, burdened with anxieties, wondering if they are good enough. You read the list in verse 5, and you're already feeling overwhelmed about all that you are called to do. This list seems longer than the rest, especially the instructions for the young men. That doesn't seem fair. In light of all this, the one area of self-control that I want to challenge you about is your use of social media. Now, Instagram or Facebook can be a good thing. You can post articles you've been blessed by. You can post silly pictures of your children. You can read and, and share about ideas regarding home life. But you can also go, then log off from social media, very frustrated. Studies have rightly, rightfully shown connections between social media and depression. If you go to social media and you compare your life with the other so-called perfect moms, you look down on them. And will feel horrible, horrible about yourself. Is it really worth it? Do you need more self-control with social media when it is no longer a five-minute therapy and it is not really refreshing for your already tired soul? Going back to the book Crazy Busy, Kevin DeYoung deals with technology and busyness in one chapter. And this is what he says. Quote, We are busy with busyness. Rather than figure out what to do with our spare minutes and hours, we are content to swim in the shallows and pass our time with passing the time. We are always engaged with our thumbs, but rarely engaged with our thoughts. We keep downloading information, but rarely get down into the depths of our hearts, he says. Don't sit in self-pity. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't simply put yourself down. Don't cross yourself out. Listen. Jesus loves you. And he's calling you to himself. Unplug, disconnect, and go to the word. Sit at his feet and listen. In the midst of little children and hectic schedules and all day multitasking, listen to the word and stand on the promises of God, our Savior. Finally, young men. Verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Is this helpful and essential for young men? A thousand times, yes. Young men need self-control and, well, that's it. They just need self-control. With wisdom, Paul stops right there. His instruction is brief but all-encompassing. Right after this, in verse 7, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He is calling on the elders and the church leaders to come alongside young men, spend time with them, disciple them, teach them. Once more, we see that wisdom flows downward from one generation to the next. Yes, even young men, energetic, passionate, crazy, adventurous young men can and must have self-control by the help of the Holy Spirit. What does this look like? As with the other groups, I'm not saying this is the main or only application, but just one. Young men need self-control in the area of money and materialism. You have and you want more. You take money from your parents or you cash in your paycheck from work, not to give first to the Lord's work, not to save, not to help those in need, but simply to buy more, more gadgets, more shoes, more clothing, more video games. You sell your car to buy a newer and better one. You assume that your value is found in what you own. And though you have enough, a no one has come out. And you believe there's something wrong if you don't buy the new one. And so you go. If the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus disappointed when Jesus called him to give up his idol of money and give everything to the poor, Do you see that your love for money is more than able to keep you from loving and following Jesus? Self-control is not boring or restrictive. It is essential for life. We've considered Titus 2 to see what this looks like for each of us. And so now the third honest question for this afternoon, how? How is this even possible? How can we be a people of self-control to answer that I want to turn your attention to the passage we earlier read, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. During those few seconds that sinful desire is at the front door of your heart, offering you sin, right then and there, do not listen to yourself. Don't make excuses. Don't just sit there passively. Instead, preach. Preach this truth to your own soul. Direct your heart to this sin paragraph. Start writing about, Paul started writing about the grace of God and just couldn't stop. It's a four-verse run-on sentence. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. How can we have self-control? The answer is the grace of God. Only The grace of God takes self-control out of the realm of hopelessness and empowers us to live differently today. According to this passage, the grace of God appearing at the cross is with us every day of our lives and will take us home where our salvation will be complete. The grace that delivered is daily disciplining us and directing us to our eternal hope. The grace of God is not only at work at our regeneration, but also our sanctification as we await for our glorification. Or to put it another way, we live by grace as if Jesus died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming back tomorrow. The duty of self-control follows and stands on the doctrine of God's grace. And so let's look at this grace and see how it helps us. Believe that the grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. The word used refers to a king returning victoriously from battle. Or for the appearing of the morning sun after a dark night. Grace has a personal name. It is Jesus. So as Jesus appeared, grace appeared. At the right moment, when we were hopeless and helpless, when we needed him the most, he appeared with victory. If you're feeling unsavable and unlovable today, remember this is why he came. Believe that by the grace of God, Jesus gave himself for us. He suffered by the hands of sinful men. He faced the holy wrath of God. He died for our sins, all for our redemption. Is it hard for you to maintain self-control over your anxious thoughts and your outbursts of anger? Are you struggling to instead be patient with all the people? Are you struggling to be committed to prayer? Look to the Christ who died for you. He purchased your freedom by his blood. He paid the price to make you his own. And so you are no longer enslaved to sin, for you belong to the Father. Do, you, do not aim for self-control as if you owe God as if you're paying off a debt. Paying a few pennies to the one who paid trillions for your ransom is not fitting or honorable. Instead, see grace as fuel. Humbly and continually receive and fill your tank with grace fuel while you are on the path of holiness. Burn a lot of grace each day. Start the journey new each day because his supply will not run out. Believe that by the grace of God, Jesus has made you his own. Verse 14, He saved you to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, right? Now you belong to Him and you are to live for Him. But more than that, He lives in you. He has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. And this Spirit is at work to convict you of sin and to make you more like Jesus. And as the Spirit works in you, the fruit will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Believe that this grace that delivered you on that one day is also disciplining you. As you consider verse 12, be sure not to ignore the good news of 11 and 13. Grace delivered and grace disciplines. Like a parent, daily nurturing, encouraging, and guiding a child. Like a teacher, daily educating, instructing, and warning if you don't listen. Have you bought into lies about the Christian life, as I have? For years I believed I was not good enough. For years I believed that God was only putting up with me, that I can't overcome this. The Holy Spirit comes with a curriculum of grace to undo the lies and to ground you in the truth instead. He reminds you that now and always God is with you, ahead of you, for you, loving you, working in you, drawing you to himself. The grace of God will remind you of the joy and beauty of the intimacy with the Father so that you will not say yes to your sinful desires and instead be disgusted by them. Believe that this grace will empower you towards self-control. It is a gift. Grace is a gift and it is power. Only, if I had only known this growing up, that it's not just a gift, but it's power. If only I saw grace as a power, but instead for years I tried to be good enough with my own efforts and I struggled massively with false guilt. When you see the work of the grace of God that he has done and is doing and will do, you fight for self-control in your life. Confess. And repent and remember that God saved you according to verse 14 to be a people zealous for good deeds. Don't sit there telling me how hard it is. For this is not your fight, this is His fight, but you're called to be fierce in this fight. Self control is a gift given by God, and so let us take it by force. Let us say no to sin because Jesus already has said yes to you on the cross. I encourage you to take an hour sometime this week to reflect on that paragraph. Write, journal, pray, and see if your heart is not stirred away from sin and towards God. And there is more. Believe that this grace that appeared once when Jesus came, veiled in glory, will appear again when Jesus comes with glorious hope for his own. And when he comes, we shall behold him completely and this will transform us to be like him. Our salvation will surely be complete then. And so we can live with total assurance now, especially in the area of self control. Today we are in between these two appearances of Jesus. We are sitting in the school of grace, and from one window shines the light of Calvary, but from the other window shines the light of the second coming of Christ. We are in the training school of grace, well lit by the sun shining from both sides of his first and second coming. And the room will become brighter and brighter as time goes on. And that is how we study grace and we embrace grace and we live in grace. Believe that this grace will come in the person of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. Verse 13 is not referring to two different people. One, not two. Our great God and Savior is one of the strongest declarations of the deity of Jesus found in the Bible. Your Savior on the cross is God. And so if He started the work of salvation in your life, He will complete it. He started. He will be faithful. And that means that that your struggle with self-control, though very real and overwhelming now, will end. Praise Jesus that your struggle will end. Your struggle with busyness and stress, with a critical attitude, with words, with lust, with money, the struggle will end. This blessed hope, which fuels daily faithfulness towards holiness. Listen, though self-control is about good living, I have tried to emphasize good news in this message because from experience I've realized that believing better can lead to behaving better. So the truths of 11 to 14 are the foundation for the call to a godly life with self-control. The what and how and why of self-control is founded on the grace of God. God said no to Jesus on the cross so that by faith, God would say yes to us in Jesus. The yes of God through Jesus is our hope. We are to live with self-control, to say no to sinful desires and instead say yes to all that God calls us to do and to be in Jesus. He said yes so that we can say no to sin and say yes to Him every day. Are you growing in your fight to say no to sinful desire? Are you growing in your willingness to say yes to the Lord instead? So when sinful desire stands at the front of the door of your heart and you see the need for self-control go back to the gospel again and again and again